Section 19 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Evidence Furnished by Science of Likenesses, Part 3. The flower, however, is not the only part of the plant which has received abundant elucidation at the hands of the science of likenesses. The ingenuity of nature and the prolific nature of the expedients by which she has developed structures to serve her varied ends formed of old two of the stereotyped sources of wonder by the recital of which philosophers were wont to regale their auditors. This fertility of device in using simple means to effect important ends receives a new reading from the study of homology. We now perceive that the modifications effected by nature represent the utilization of like parts in diverse ways. Just as essentially similar limbs may be employed in the animal world for very different purposes, so the variations of similar parts in plants may illustrate what is meant by homoplastic organs, that is, the adaptation to new and varied ways of life of the common belongings of the plant world. Our comprehension of this truth may be firstly assisted by an example culled from the animal world. The idea that nature, in framing her strange fellows, and in developing the unusual and unwanted, should affect her purpose by the creation of new structures and fresh parts, is an idea for which there apparently exists the warrant of common sense. But let us see if the way of nature in such a case is not rather by the elaboration and modification of already existing parts. Take as an illustrative case the tortoise and its structure. No single animal form stands apparently more aloof from its neighbors of the reptile class than the sluggish colonian. Enclosed in a bony box, its structure seems to be unique, and its relations to the serpent, lizard, or crocodile extremely unapparent. But what has comparative anatomy to say respecting the building of the colonian house? Look at the roof formed by the greatly expanded ribs and solid spine regard its sides formed by the cartilages or ends of the ribs, and its floor formed by certain skin bones comparable roughly in their nature to the large scales of the crocodile's undersurface, and in any case presenting us with no structures unusual or foreign to the reptile class. The box-like body of the animal is, in short, formed by so much of its skeleton, and by so many of its scales, altered and modified to suit the animal's way of life. It presents us, thus, with no new thing in the way of structure, but with an elaboration of the common elements of the reptile body. More interesting, perhaps, because more complex in their relations, are the changes which occur in the lower jaw and ear, as we ascend from the fishes as the lowest vertebrates to man and quadrupeds as the highest. We could not find a better example of the manner in which nature molds the same elements into widely different forms than the latter subject. Homology teaches us clearly enough that in the elaboration of the skull, as in the modification of the tortoise skeleton as a whole, new parts and new organs are evolved simply and for the most part by the alteration and higher development of the original type. When we examine the lower jaw and its connections with the skull in any vertebrate animal below the rank of the quadruped, we find that the jaw is attached to the skull by the intervention of a special bone called the quadrate bone. The manner in which lower jaw and skull are connected in man and quadrupeds is very different from the latter arrangement. In man, as everyone knows, the lower jaw works upon the skull directly and of itself, 
and the quadrate bone, which one sees so distinctly in the reptile, bird, frog, or fish, is apparently wanting in higher vertebrate life. Is the skull of the quadruped, then, modeled, as regards its lower jaw and articulations thereof, on a different type from that seen in the lower vertebrate? Comparative anatomy supplies the answer in a highly interesting fashion. Attend for a moment to the disposition of the parts of the internal ear, which in quadrupeds we find to exist within the skull and just above the lower jaw. We find three small bones to connect the drum of the ear with the internal hearing apparatus. Of these three bones, one, shaped somewhat like a hammer, is named the malleus, and to this bone our attention must be specially directed. For when we trace this bone downwards through the reptiles and birds towards the fishes, we discover that it alters its relations to the ear and assumes new ones with the lower jaw. In reptiles and birds, for example, we find the malleus to be of large size and to be divided so that one part becomes transformed into the quadrate bone and another into the upper part of the lower jaw itself. In the fish, a third bone may actually appear in connection with the lower jaw, and as the result of the division of the part representing the malleus of man and quadrupeds, so that, divesting the subject of all technicality, we may say that, as we first enter the vertebrate subkingdom, we find the malleus to be represented in the fishes by no less than three bones, which are connected with the upper part of the lower jaw and lie outside the ear altogether. Next, in the reptile and bird, we find a modification of this arrangement to hold good. Here the malleus is divided into two portions only, these parts, however, being still concerned in the articulation of the lower jaw. But in man and his neighbor quadrupeds, these outside bones become pushed upwards in the course of development and are finally enclosed within the skull. They thus appear as the malleus of the ear, having no connection with the jaw, and being concerned in the higher function of conveying impressions of sound to the inner ear. The upper part of the lower jaw of the lower vertebrate is, in fact, taken into the interior of the skull and ear when we reach the quadruped class. The two companion bones of the malleus in the ear likewise represent separate parts of the skull, which in higher life become modified for the hearing function. And a glance at the accompanying diagram will serve to show how the other bones, incus and stapes, of the quadruped ear are represented wholly or in part in lower life and how they attain their higher place and function simply as the result of modification and of the evolution of a new structure from the materials of an already existing type. Such modification is simply part of the wider process we see everywhere illustrated in animal life at large, whereby complication and diversity of structure and form are the results of no new creations, but of the development, the splitting up, and differentiation of already existing parts. So it is also with plants in some of their most unusual aspects. The strange features in animals and plants are in reality but the altered commonplace of nature. By way of illustration, the subject of the thread-like tendrils of plants presents itself in a prominent manner. It would be hard to discover any organs of plants which are better known than these. Poetic allegory itself has ever found in the simile of the tendrils the best guise under which the affections of mankind might be shadowed forth, and that weak-stemmed plants climb by the aid of these organs is not a matter requiring even a primer of botany for its verification. Now plants of very varied nature possess these organs, and the question arises 
Are these tendrils new and special organs in such plants as possess them, or are they but modifications, like the home of the tortoise, of familiar structures? Let the science of likenesses reply by directing our attention to the general form of the leaf. Every ordinary leaf consists, as we know, of a stalk or petiole and a blade or lamina, and when we look at the apple leaf or at a rose leaf, we may see at the point where the leaf stalk leaves the stem two little wing-like appendages called stipules, and which are probably to be regarded as normal parts and appendages of the leaf. These stipules are large in the pansy tribe and are also prominent in the beans and peas, whilst in one of the vetches, Lathrius africa, the yellow vetch, the stipules, as we shall see, may actually represent the leaves. In many other plants, on the contrary, no stipules occur. Now let us examine the leaf of the common pea. It is a compound leaf, and we notice that the tendrils seem to grow out at the sides and at the end of the leaf stalk. The tendrils here are at once seen to exist in the place of some of the leaflets, and are formed by the end of the leaf stalk also. We find a very simple modification to be thus represented. Certain parts of a leaf, in other words, become altered to enable the plant to climb. Tendrils here are homologous with leaflets and leaf stalk. In the lentil, it is the leaf stalk itself which is long drawn out to form the climbing thread. The vine or passion flower may be selected as our next example. Here the tendrils appear to be formed in a very different fashion from that seen in the pea. Apparently, the tendril in the vine and passion flower is a modified branch. Such an opinion being arrived at, from a study of the relations of the tendril to the stem and normal branches of the plant. The Virginia creeper likewise climbs by means of its altered tendril-like branches. Once again, we meet with a similar end, that of forming a climbing support, served by a different means, when we turn to the smilax, which in southern Europe replaces the byrony of our English hedgerows. The leaves of smilax are heart-shaped, and when we look at the points at which the leaves spring from the stem, we detect two tendrils which pass to the surrounding plants, there to entwine themselves in complex fashion. Now what are the tendrils of Smilax? Our knowledge of the leaf and our observation of the position of our tendrils enable us to answer the question. What organs arise from the base of the leaf stalk? The reply is stipules, and stipules are paired organs. Therefore, we conclude that the tendrils of Smilax are simply altered stipules. The yellow vetch, which adorns our cornfields, reverses the conditions of smilax. The stipules remain in the vetch to represent the leaves, whilst the leaf stalk itself and its leaflets become altered as in the pea, and to enable Lathyrus to indulge its climbing propensities. Thus does a study of tendrils illustrate in apt fashion the bearings of homology. But for this science of likenesses, we should not be enabled to unravel some of the complexities which beset the study of how a plant climbs. And we again note how modification and adaptation, as distinguished from new creations, form the way of the world of life. No less interesting in certain of its aspects is the study of the thorns and prickles which set the rosebud or give to the hawthorn its characteristic name and feature. The popular botany of everyday life is content to consider prickles and thorns to represent one and the same kind of structure. But the science of likenesses is careful to ask us to make a very decided distinction between their nature as between the tendrils themselves. Examine the slow, for instance, or the hawthorn, and you will readily determine the nature of the thorns which these plants bear. You will note that from the thorns leaves spring, 
and in this observation lies the key to the understanding of their relationship with the other parts of the plant. Leaves are only born on the stem itself, or on the appendages of the stem we familiarly call branches. Therefore, the presence of leaves on the thorns plainly tells us that these appendages of sloe and hawthorn are in reality stunted branches. Nor are we left in the slightest doubt as to the nature of these objects, for many of the plants which in a wild state possess thorns alone produce full-grown branches under cultivation. Spinosi ebores cultura sapius deponent spinus in hortus, said Linnaeus, and the sloe itself illustrates the remark. But the prickles of the rose, which might readily be deemed thorns in miniature, now demand attention. The prickle has no intimate connection with the stem. On the contrary, it is merely a hardened appendage of the skin of the stem or leaf, as the case may be. A prickle causes no trouble in its detachment from the stem, and the botanist would inform us that these appendages, in their true nature, correspond to hardened hairs. Lastly, we may meet with double prickles, or spines, which spring from the axils of leaves and from the base of the leaf stalk. In the acacias and the American prickly ash, Echinopanax, we may see spines, the origin of which is not hard to trace, and which spring from the bases of the leaves. Just as the tendrils of the smilax were formed from stipules, so we perceive in the acacias how these latter organs may be altered to form the spines or prickles of these plants. Passing from leaves and flowers to fruits, we enter a new but equally interesting field of speculation with the last. Let us firstly inquire what is the nature of the structure to which the botanist gives the name of fruit. It is perfectly evident from the common knowledge of nature's processes which ordinary observation affords that the fruit is merely part of the flower. The buds of springtime and the blossoms of summer must precede the fruit of the autumn, and the promise of a golden reaping is heralded by the early growth of the vernal season. Without the flower, then, the fruit would be non-existent, and considering that within the vast majority of fruits we find the seeds, we can readily construct a definition of the botanical fruit by defining it as the ripe pistil. Such is the invariable nature of the fruit in the mind of the botanist. Popularly, however, fruits are only to be so called when they are edible. The mental and scientific concept of the man of science vanishes before the practical matter-of-fact definition of a fruit as that which is good to eat and perhaps each definition meets in its own way the exigencies and circumstances which called it forth. But the study of fruits from the botanical side presents us with a highly interesting illustration of the value of homology, as showing us how the modification of simple and well-known parts of the flower may become transformed so as to be well-nigh unrecognizable in the fruit. No better illustration of the latter fact can be found than in the strawberries which secured the full admiration of Dr. Bottler, who declared that doubtless God could have made a better berry, but doubtless God never did, a remark the correctness of which will probably be viewed proportionately by the individual minds and tastes which may consider the saying. Glancing at the strawberry flower, we see no promise therein of the toothsome fruit which the summer brings, and we may well be puzzled to discover the true nature of our berry, even after a close examination of its substance. The apple cut across is seen to contain seeds, therefore we may reasonably enough imagine that whatever growth has produced the fleshy fruit from the apple blossom 
we find the seed-producing pistil of the flower to be represented in its interior. But no seeds are to be found in the interior of Dr. Bottler's berry. Where, then, is the true fruit, the ripened pistil of the strawberry, and what is the nature of the succulent mass we eat? The science of likenesses answers the question by a reference to the growth of the strawberry itself. In the flower, the pistil is seen to be composed of a great many little parts, called carpels, equally well seen in the pistil of a buttercup. As the flower fades and the pistil ripens, the end of the flower stalk, called in botany the receptacle, begins to swell out and to exceed the rest of the flower in its growth. Soon it becomes red and succulent, and the little green carpels of the pistil, each containing a single seed, come in due time to be separated from each other and to be embedded in the juicy mass on which, when it was the simple end of the flower stalk, it was set. Thus, to offer a friend the botanical fruit of the strawberry would be a proceeding tantamount to invite him to a barmecide's feast, since to fulfill the promise we should simply require to pick out from the surface of the berry the little green carpels which represent the ripe pistil of the flower the popular fruit, as we have seen, being merely the enlarged end of the flower stalk. In such a case, one might well be excused for preferring the common construction of the term fruit to the scientific, and for neglecting the intellectual aspect of the berry in favor of the exercise of practical aesthetics as applied to the end of the flower stalk. The strawberry does not stand alone in its illustration of the curious facts concerning the transformation of flowers which the study of homologies elicits. What, for example, is to be said of the rose fruit itself, save that the familiar red hip of our hedgerows is formed by the enlarged and hollowed flower stalk, along with the calyx or outer and green part of the flower, or, according to some botanists, by the calyx alone, whose green leaves become thickened, red, and glistening as the summer passes into the autumn and come to enclose the true fruit in the form of the little carpels similar in nature to those on the outside of the strawberry. So that the difference, in one botanical theory at least, between the hip of the rose and the strawberry simply consists in the fact that the rose flower stalk is hollow and has the fruits inside, whilst the end of the strawberry flower stalk is solid and has its fruits outside. The apple and pear likewise exhibit much the same arrangement as the rose and strawberry in respect of their fruits. If we suppose the hip of the rose to have its walls extremely thickened and fleshy, we should convert it into a form of fruit resembling the apple or pear. No less interesting is the nature of the fig, which, to be properly understood, should be examined as it grows in the hothouse. Slice your fig longwise, and you will see in its interior not seeds, but flowers, some with stamens alone, others with pistils alone. The fig appears before us as another example of the hollowing of the flower stalk, with this important difference, that not merely the fruits, but the flowers, are contained in its interior. It only remains for us to sum up the results and general conclusions to which our brief study of the science of likenesses may be said legitimately to lead us. Turning firstly to the features we have just been discussing, we have noted, for instance, that the leaf was the type of the whole plant, and that as the leaf became modified to form the flower, so that flower and its parts, still representing leaves, became further altered to form the fruit, under all its varied aspects and forms. From a simple structure, the leaf, we thus discover by the aid of the science of likenesses, 
complex and elaborate organs and parts to be developed. What lessons do such examples teach us concerning the order of nature at large? Do these lessons argue in favor of evolution or against that theory of nature? The answer is not for a single moment doubtful. If, as our inquiry shows, it is the way of nature to produce many and varied structures by the modification of one simple organ or part, surely there is no greater wonder involved in the idea that, by the same process of development, she has woven from simple forms the whole complex warp and woof of the living world. When we see nature in her abnormal methods of development revealing to us, under the guise of her sports and freaks amidst the flowers, the true composition of the pistil and stamens, or altering the same structure to form the varied fruits, when we discover that the complex skull has apparently been built up through slow and gradual modifications from skulls of simpler type, which vanish away in the lowest confines of the vertebrate animals, and disappear in the barely defined skullless cord of the lowest fish, we may not esteem it an impossibility that all organic forms have been evolved under like conditions of development. Nor must we omit to think of another important point involved in the study of homologies. If nature is, as we have shown, liable to modify and alter continually the work of her hands, can such a practice be held to favor the origin of new species by the way which evolution points out? When the flower returns to the leaf type, or when it exhibits variations from its usual form and structure, is nature going back or reverting to former conditions, or is she initiating paths which lead to new species? The answer to both these queries may be given in the affirmative. When the flower grows into its leaves, that is a reversion, a stepping backward to the primitive and simple type. When, on the other hand, the plant shows a tendency towards complexity, instead of simplicity, to alter in favor of increased development, then is seen the tendency to progression and elaboration of the type. Both tendencies hold sway in nature, and the one is as inexplicable as the other, save on the theory of evolution. From the monstrosity of the flower a new variety springs, and in time the variety becomes a race, and the race in turn a new species. Thus, whilst the course of nature before our eyes runs not smoothly but in an apparent irregularity, the deeper faith in a law-governed universe, not as yet fully comprehended or known, convinces us that with the higher knowledge of tomorrow, the irregularities of today will resolve themselves into parts of an ordered system. It is not without good reason for believing in the reality of the convictions which nature studies inspire respecting the government of this world's order that we find Professor Parker maintaining that, quote, the study of animal morphology leads to continually grander and more reverential views of creation and of a creator. Each fresh advance shows us further fields for conquest, and at the same time deepens the conviction that while results and secondary operations may be discoverable by human intelligence, no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. We live as in a twilight of knowledge, charged with revelations of order and beauty. We steadfastly look for a perfect light which shall reveal perfect order and beauty. Unquote. End of section 19. Chapter 7 The Evidence Furnished by Science of Likenesses, Part 3.